I thought we would move on from Esther after last week until Yahweh stopped me in my tracks on really Monday morning. This all started and showed me a major piece to how this story in the book of Esther ends. If you've read it through since where we, you know, from where we've been teaching, uh, it ends with them establishing a festival called Parum. Um, and that's a really southern way to pronounce what it's actually in Hebrew, but uh, Parum, spelled P-U-R-I-M. So the book of Esther ends with a festival. I think a lot of times we skip over things in Scripture because we, we think they're not applicable to us today, and we miss really important things. So they go through the entire narrative that we've been reading and studying leading up to this, They get to the end of the book of Esther, and the book of Esther ends in 9, and then 10 is only a couple of verses, chapter 10. But they end in chapter chapter 9 with a festival, Palram, that a lot of Jews still celebrate today. Uh, Festivals in the Old Testament were to celebrate and remember a major moment in Israel's history, specifically where Yahweh moved in a history-shifting way. The purpose was to never forget, thus take for granted their moments of breakthrough. Y'all with me? Okay. Hey, Kyrie. What's up, dude? You just caught my eyes just now. What's up? Like your shirt. Um, the purpose of a festival was to never forget, thus take for granted their moments of breakthrough. One crucial way of honoring the Lord is remembering where he brought you from and what he has done in you. The New Testament church was not to do away with old traditions. It was to bring those traditions into perfection. So we don't have festivals today like the Israelites did and therefore wrongly believe it's not important to remember. But the truth is, we in the New Covenant are actually called to a higher level of remembering and honoring because of the greatness of what the Lord has done in us. Okay? So in the Old Testament, the Lord would set them free from their enemies, and they would establish a festival, usually for all generations, to remember the moment the Lord set them free from their enemies. How much more should the people of God today, who have been permanently set free from our enemies, look back and honor and remember where we come from? Right? So you say, well, Josh, we do that at Easter. Yeah. We, we mark it, and we put on great shows, and we put on our best attire, and we eat really good food, I would dare say we do very little honoring on Easter. I'm just, starting, I'll just go ahead and start off at the top. People mad at me. But, right? Right? We, let, me, let me put it like this. Everybody shows up to church on Easter. The week after Easter, other than Father's Day, is the lowest attended Sunday of any service in the whole year. The week after Easter. Why? Because it was never about honoring the resurrection. It was always about putting on our religious mask once a year to feel better about ourselves that we went to church on Easter Sunday. So I say that the greatest celebration of Easter is the week after Easter. Not Easter Sunday. You know why? Because anybody who has done anything with the resurrection will look different on the week after Easter than those who have done nothing with the resurrection and honestly don't even show up. 
All right. There are two major poisons. This is going to get positive, by the way. I'm just, I'm just. There are two major, somebody's got to talk, all right? Two major poisons to American Christianity today. This is something the Lord gave me, and I'm going to read something literally right out of my journal in a second. There are two major poisons to American Christianity today. You ready? Lukewarm Christians and Christians who refuse to get rooted. Two things. Lukewarm Christians and Christians who refuse to get rooted. Let me just break this down for a second. Why is lukewarm Christians a poison? Because 99% of Christians in America today are lukewarm. Okay? What does lukewarm mean? It means you have a mixture. How do you get lukewarm? You either have something that's hot, and then you mix cold water in, so you get lukewarm. Or you have something that's hot that you don't touch for a very long time that becomes lukewarm. Right? So for you to be lukewarm, you don't start lukewarm. You start hot, and then at some point, you either mix something that's other than, so let's say cold, or you do nothing with what was once hot, and therefore it becomes lukewarm, or what I'm about to talk, to, talk about, apathetic. Okay? So that's number one. Number two is primarily in millennials and younger, which are Christians who refuse to get rooted. So we have a bunch of people who want to run around and do a thousand different things for the kingdom, but never get discipled in the first place. Let me tell you something. If you don't get discipled before you try to go and disciple, you'll never disciple anyone. Genesis 1 says you can only recreate of the same kind. So you can only recreate what you are. So if you're discipled, you'll recreate disciples. If you're floating around and tossed to and fro like the waves, you'll create other peoples who are tossed to and fro by the waves. Evangelism is natural. It is not effort. Evangelism is effortless. You know why? Because if I actually look like Jesus, it's effortless for me to create other people who look like Jesus. This is no effort to me. Planning sermons is no effort to me. You know why? Because everything he gives me in the secret place that he releases for me to deliver to you becomes the sermons we preach every week. Effortless. I don't sit around in my office and say, well, what are we going to talk about this week? Never. I don't know what we're going to talk about next week. No idea. But he does. And it's effortless. So what do I do in my week? I spend time discipling people, being discipled by my spiritual fathers, and then show up on Sunday and the family gets together and the Lord delivers whatever he wants to deliver. But Christians refusing to get rooted is what I believe causes lukewarm Christians. Because if you would get rooted first, you would allow someone or a group of people to light a fire in you that you would then go light in other people. If you get, let me say it like this, I love authority. I love authority. You know why? Because I have spiritual fathers in my life who refuse to let me get lukewarm. So any moment I start sliding into the place where I start either mixing or I stop doing anything with what the Lord has done in me, a spiritual father comes in and says, hold up. We're not doing that. Both 
lukewarm and Christians who refuse to get rooted started in seed form as the inability to remember their first love. In Revelation 2, the church to Ephesus, he says, you've done this great, you've done this great, you've done this great, but I have one thing against you, you've forgotten your first love. Page 2. No one, when they are truly born again, starts out lukewarm. Amen? I can, maybe I can speak for myself. When I got saved, I was ready to take on the world. Crucify me upside down, it don't matter. I'll do whatever I got to do. Right? Amen? Everybody else? Maybe some of y'all slid in lukewarm. That's okay. It takes seasons, seasons, plural, of compromise in the one who has forgotten where they started to produce lukewarm Christians. 100% of those who have become lukewarm have been saved a long time. A hundred percent of any Christian that you would have a conversation with and then be lukewarm have been saved a long time. You never sit in front of a Christian who just got born again and then be lukewarm. Because time causes our memory to fade. And when we aren't constantly and consistently tending the flame, we forget the flame that was lit in us in the first place. In Leviticus 6, the Lord told Moses to command Aaron and his sons to never let the fire go out on the altar of burnt offerings. If you've never read Leviticus, you get some awesome nuggets from it, okay? You also feel real bad about having tattoos. No, I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> to never let the fire go out. Where did that fire in Leviticus 6 come from? He tell, Command Aaron and his sons that the fire on the burnt offering altar is to never go out. What is your calling as the priest? Primarily to make sure that fire never goes out. So if it rains, make sure the fire never goes out. If it storms, make sure the fire never goes out. If it's windy, if enemy comes in, make sure the fire never goes out. That's the call. So believers, believers, as high priest, all believers today, what is our call? I believe primarily is to never let the flame go out. So where did the flame come from? You read Leviticus 9. Leviticus 9 says that in the Holy of Holies, a fire came out and lit the burnt offering altar. So Aaron and his sons, the priests, were given the command, never let the fire go out on the altar. What fire? The fire that just came out of the presence or throne of the Lord. In Numbers 3, verse 4, two of Aaron's sons, the ones that got that command from Moses, die because they make an offering with unauthorized fire. What's unauthorized fire? Fire not from the presence of the Lord. Man-made. I mean, maybe I should have just preached on numbers, but I want to finish. I want to finish Esther. Over the generations, in this story, Leviticus, never let the fire go out. Over the generations, tending the flame became a chore rather than an honor. Why? Because they forgot where the fire came from. So Leviticus 9, fire comes out of the presence of the Lord, lights the offering, the altar, burnt offering altar. 
And then they're called to never let the flame go out. If I'm Aaron and I'm standing around this burnt offering altar and there's a fire burning on it that was from the presence of the Lord. Most scholars believe it's the same fire that Moses saw in the burning bush. So you're staring at this fire. I would give every inch of my day, every minute of my day, every second of my day, making sure I am fascinated with this thing because I saw where it came from. Ten generations later, when you didn't see where it came from and it becomes less and less of an honor, you then start approaching this altar with a chore mentality because you weren't there and you don't remember where the fire came from. Had there been fathers to root generations in the understanding that what is on the altar isn't as important as remembering where what is on the altar came from, then 10 generations later, they'd still be honoring the flame. So we have a book full of awesome stories and a book full of miracles and a book full of prophetic words, and we approach this thing like it means absolutely nothing to us. We have more access to the Bible than any other country on planet Earth and statistically read the Bible less than any other country on planet Earth. you got people in China who are underground or in jail cells handwriting as much of the Bible as they can before it gets taken from them, and they possibly get put to death and they are honoring the scripture that they do not have access to. We dishonor the scripture we have so many translations of that it's hard to find the translation you want to read. There are hundreds of English translations of the scripture. Hundreds. You know why? Because people aren't fascinated with the power in the book. People need to get entertained to read the book. Why? Because over the generations, we use this to get what we wanted rather than using this to get into the doorway to have access to what no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has comprehended and glory in the latter house that is greater than the glory of the former house. We don't care about that. All we care about is using this to get people in the doors. And I'm telling you, I hope people come in the doors. I hope we have a great church and a thriving church. But this is not a tool for me to grow my ministry. This is a tool for me to inherit the face of the one that Moses met face-to-face with and mouth-to-mouth with on the mountain when it was just he and the Lord. Whoo! All right. Y'all know I don't preach like this, so the Lord's just, you know... I lied. Maybe I do sometimes. Deuteronomy 8. Let me just read this. Don't turn there. We're going to go to Esther 9 in a minute, maybe. Deuteronomy 8. Just listen what the Lord tells the Israelites, okay? This is what he tells them. He says, You shall eat your fill and bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So they're going into Canaan in a little while. He's giving them kind of a heads up and commands and all that stuff so that they can honor the Lord when they get there. Okay. So you shall eat your fill, bless the Lord your God for the, good, uh, for the good land that he has given you. Take care, listen to this, take care that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses to live in, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, 
then do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, an arid wasteland with poisonous stakes and scorpions. He made water flow for you from the flint rock and fed you in the wilderness with manna, and your ancestors did not know. That your ancestors did not know to humble you and to test you and in the end to do good for you. Lord, help us. When, when you get to the land and everything you touch is multiplied and you've built great houses and you've eaten your fill and you're blessed, don't forget where you came from. You were slaves when I found you. You were nothing when I found you. I brought you out of Egypt. I led you through the wilderness that no other group of people could have gotten through without being killed, by the way. I led you through the wilderness. When you were thirsty, I made a rock pour out water for you. When you were hungry, I turned the dew into manna for you. Do not forget where you came from. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. Last couple of verses. If you do forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall perish. Like the nations that the Lord is destroying before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. How would they not obey? By forgetting where they came from. Our honor issues today have 100% to do with us getting amnesia of where we came from. When he found me, let me tell you how, let me just tell you my story. We're just going, we're just going to talk today. When he found me, you know what I was not doing? Drugs. I wasn't cussing. I wasn't, I guess I was drinking. But um, I, I, I wasn't doing all that stuff. You know what I was doing when he found me? You ready? You know what I was doing? Leading worship. I got quiet. Because some of y'all were with me when I was leading worship. That's not, again, has nothing to do with where I came from. Lord, people send me stuff. Has not, but it has everything to do with me. Leading worship, I thought my fame growing was my calling. So when he found me, I was not like a lot of people on the streets doing drugs, doing all this stuff, and then the Lord picked me up and set my feet on a rock and changed my life forever. You know what he did? He came and he said, hey, listen, I love you enough to tell you that you are a pretender. We're not leading worship. You're performing. And if you want to perform, you go right ahead. But if you ever want to lead worship, come find me. And what did I do? The next morning, started waking up at, y'all know my story, started waking up at 4 a.m. and spending five hours a morning with the Lord. You were there for a lot of this, and you probably recognize the transition that started happening in my life, because you were there from the beginning, and you were there towards the end. But 
I started waking up and inheriting a presence in my life that calls me to not question the gospel. It calls me to question what I called ministry. Because before, I thought ministry was if we could get as many people to repeat a prayer as humanly possible, then we could win the world. Then I get in the secret place and realize I've repeated a prayer and I'm more lost than any of them. So I repeated the prayer when I was eight. I got born again about six years ago. Now people start getting quiet. You start talking about repeating the prayer. We thought the blessed hope was people repeating prayers. That ain't the blessed hope. It might get you in the door. Repeating prayer. I, I don't do this for repeated prayers. I do this for people being born again. That you are no longer who you were. The old is gone. The new is here. Behold, you are a new creation. All things have become new. That's what I'm here for. I'm here for people that I'm looking around in this room that when you came to this church, you were kind of there. You were close. And as you continually follow Jesus and get in the secret place and let him show you who you are and go through the book of Song of Songs and let him teach you what he thinks about you, now you're walking with him in a way that you never walked with him before. And it's not because of a good sermon, and it's not because of good worship, and it's not because we have the best programs on planet Earth or even within this block. I promise you there are other churches in this block that have better programs than us. Because that's not what we chase after. What we chase after is one thing I desire, and this shall I seek the rest of my life to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon the beauty of your countenance. That's what I live for. That's what we have a church for, is to raise up people that say, one thing I desire to dwell in your house forever and gaze upon the beauty of your face. If I get your face, I get everything else. So Esther ends her narrative by establishing a festival. Why? Because it doesn't matter what God has done in the past unless it becomes the necessary foundation for the future. Say that one more time. It doesn't matter what God does in the past unless it becomes what it is intended to be, the necessary foundation for the future. Because you don't see the foundation of a house it's easy to forget. It's the only thing keeping the house up. The foundation, however, is the very thing that allows the house to be all that it was designed to be. So Esther and Mordecai being used to save the Jews meant nothing unless every single generation after remembered honored and was fueled by the moment the Lord took seeds in secret and gave birth to freedom. So I'm going to read Esther 9. I'm going to start. Where do we want to pick it up? Where do we want to pick it up? Let's pick it up in verse 16. 16. Uh, if you've missed, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Actually, I'm not going to spend any time reviewing. Uh, if you missed the past couple of weeks, they're all on the app, podcast, all that stuff. But I really want to make sure we get to um, where the Lord wants us to get to today and also eat lunch. So, though that's not as important to me. But Esther 9, 16, the other Jews, so remember, just, just a super quick, there's been a decree, Jews to be killed, Esther and Mordecai in the secret place set up a decree 
um, with the king's signet ring that the Jews could defend themselves. So this is where we are, okay? Esther 9, 16. The other Jews who were in the king's provinces gathered to defend their lives and gained relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. That's a whole other story for another day, but I would encourage you to go back and read why they didn't lay hands on the plunder. Uh, it goes back to other places in the Old Testament. Um, there was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of, fe- of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the open towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, a holiday on which they send gifts of food to one another. Amen. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the king's provinces, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same month, year by year, as the days on which the Jews gain relief from their enemies. And as the month that they had been turned, excuse me, on the, as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, and that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. So the Jews adopted as a custom what they had begun to do as Mordecai had written to them. Haman, son of Hamet, excuse me, Hamedatha, these names are just get longer and longer the more you go. Uh, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, or pure, however you pronounce it in the Hebrew, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when Esther, listen to this, when Esther came before the king, he gave orders in writing that the wicked plot that had devised against the Jews should come upon his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days are called Param, from the word pa or per, depending on the Hebrew. Thus, because all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews established and accepted as a custom for themselves and their descendants and all who joined them, that without fail, they would continue to observe these two days every year as it was written at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every family, province, and city. And these days of Param shall never fall into disuse among the Jews. Nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. I'm going to stop right there. So the Jews kill 75,800 people, including those in Susa and those everywhere else. 
75,800 people of their enemies in two days. And all but 300 of that coming in one day. So a decree had been made that all Jews be put to death. And the Lord not only gives them relief, he actually uses it as a seed to destroy the very ones who were going to kill his people. I just need to sit down for a second. All, a decree had been made, all Jews be put to death. Yahweh used that as a seed to not just set them free, but to also destroy the very ones who were going to kill him in the first place, kill them in the first place. Nothing is wasted. Nothing in the Lord is wasted. The enemy cannot have the final word. The enemy has no authority to have the final word in your life, in my life, or in anything of the kingdom. And if I had enough time, I'd teach you he has no authority to have a final word in anything, even not of the kingdom of God either. But it's for another day. All the enemy can do is give Yahweh's seed to do good. The enemy's worst is some of the seeds for Yahweh's best. Y'all with me? All that the enemy can do. He can do the worst he wants to do, which honestly, at the end of the day, the worst he could do because he has no authority is pretty much pointless to us. But the worst the enemy could do, the worst, is give seeds for Yahweh to take and plant and grow good out of. Prove it, okay? All the enemy meant for bad, Genesis 50, God has turned around and used it for my good. Remember what Isaiah 61 says. I read this last week. He gives a beautiful bouquet in the place of ashes, the oil of bliss instead of tears, the mantle of joyous praise instead of the spirit of failure. So what's he saying? He's saying ashes become the seed for a bouquet. Tears become a seed for bliss. And the spirit of failure becomes the seed for a mantle of praise. Psalm 30, 11, you turn my mourning into dancing. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. 2 Corinthians 12 says, and Ellington mentioned it this morning, that his power is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore, when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? So you get to the moment of your weakest point. And Paul says, in that moment, you're actually at your strongest point because when you are weak, then he is strong through you. So for Israel, a moment of great despair became the seed for freedom from their enemies. Mordecai and Esther decree a lasting festival to remember this moment. Why? So that they never forgot that when it seemed all hope was lost, Yahweh had the final say, and he came through for them. Their honor of what Yahweh had done in the past became a weapon for what he would do in the future. Y'all with me? I know this is a lot, but just hang with me because what's coming up is some of the best stuff Yahweh has ever given me. 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul encourages Timothy to use his prophecies as weapons. Why? 
Because when you get to a point where it seems like you want to quit, it seems like all hope is lost, I want you to remember the words somebody spoke over you before you started all of this that said you were going to do X, Y, and Z, or you were going to be X, Y, and Z. How many of us get in that moment where we'll have dreams and visions and callings and purpose and words that Yahweh spoke over us, and then we'll get in a season where it seems like none of it is coming to pass? Or we'll get in 5, 10, 15, 20-year spans where it seems like it's not coming to pass. And in those seasons, we'll start to say, maybe I misheard. And what Paul is telling Timothy, 1 Timothy 18, no, no, no. In those moments where you start questioning what you heard, you go back, you pick up your prophetic words, and you use them as weapons as you wage warfare against what you're facing in that moment, which is apathy. So when you start feeling like you're not doing what Yahweh designed you to do, you start picking up those prophetic words that he spoke over you. And maybe say, well, Josh, I don't have a ton of prophetic words. You do. It's called 66 books in a book called the Bible that most of you are holding. So what does the Lord say about your future? I'd say start at Genesis 1, get to the end of Revelation, you'll know. I mean, seriously, people want to come and debate theology all the time with me. Some of you have heard me tell you this. If you come to me and try to debate theology and you've never read the Bible front to back, I won't talk to you. I'll encourage you to go read the Bible front to back. But, you, but this is what we do is we'll pick up the book of Romans, we'll read it straight through, and we'll think we know everything about the kingdom. We got baby bunnies in our yard right now, and so I've just become natural at chasing rabbits. Um, that was a, totally a dad joke. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to break it up, you know what I'm saying? All right, Jordan's watching this in the back right now, probably goofing. All right, let me, let me read this, uh, and th- let me get to the part where I, I think Yahweh wants us to get to. Man, it's only 11.25. We got hours. All right, I'm just joking. If you're new here, uh, we joke, we joke, and also that's a little bit true. All right, uh, let, me, let me just read. I'm going to just read from the top, right? This is something the Lord gave me on the 26th, which was... Uh, two days ago, Friday, Friday, June 26th. This is straight out of my journal. I have a journal. Every time the Lord speaks to me something, I write it down to remember. Uh, So this is what he said. He said, I, Jesus, I am the high priest that has gone into the true holy place ahead of you. Okay, going back to Hebrews 4. Because of the work I've done, I've given you and all access to the presence one man once a year used to have access to. However, don't take it for granted because of the unlimited access. Now, this, this is where we're going right here. This is the phrase, and I got this starred and bracketed and all this stuff in here. Rarity breeds honor. Accessibility breeds, if not dealt with, apathy. Rarity breeds honor. I'm going to break all this down. Accessibility breeds, if it's not dealt with, apathy. You honor what you don't have a lot of access to when you momentarily possess it. You become apathetic toward what you always have possession of, Because over time, you forget the value it had in your eyes when you first received it. 
So presence was revered by most in the Old Covenant because very few had access to it. Presence is disregarded today because everyone at all times can access it. The point of the New Covenant was not to devalue presence. It was to give everyone the righteousness to taste and see what was of so much value, it required the very source of the presence to become the saving sacrifice for all to access it. If you went to the old, this is all just the Lord speaking, I'm writing this down. If you went to an old covenant high priest and said your sins are forgiven forever, you can now access the Holy of Holies at any time. Israel would have exploded in celebration and festivals to commemorate such an astonishing change in age. Just think for a moment, okay? Old covenant, one man once a year went into the presence of the Lord. If somebody went to a high priest, let's say Moses and Aaron, somebody went to Aaron, the Lord went to Aaron and said, hey, guess what? Your sins are totally forgiven forever. You can access the Holy of Holies whenever you want. It, they, I mean... I don't know if they would have come down off the mountain. They probably would have been struck dead with awe. But I promise you what would have happened is festivals and celebrations and people would have built houses in the Holy of Holies because it's like if we got access to it, might as well never leave it. And you know what I'm saying? It just would have been an explosion of celebration. You get into the new covenant in 2020 and we have unlimited and free access to the presence that used to kill people who weren't ready for it. And today... We just kind of think, oh, it's there. It's whatever. How do I know this? Because, well, no, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there. I've learned when to, when to go and not. Uh, your charge, speaking of me, my charge is to restore all and wonder to access. Restore all and wonder to access. And, uh, and then he, he repeated a phrase that he spoke. Some of y'all remember this, because this was, I think, back in January, so about six months ago. And he said, I will use you, at this point he's talking about dream, I will use you to create a modern orthodoxy. Modern orthodoxy. I'm going to explain that in a second, too. Honor meeting access creates modern orthodoxy. So let me, let me just break this down and explain this. And I'm, I'm not done with Esther. I'm going to bring it back around, but just hang with me for a second. All right? The first thing that he says, rarity breeds honor. So this is the way I'm going to explain this. When you were eight years old and somebody handed you a $20 bill, we were talking about this at dinner the other night. When you were eight years old and somebody hands you a $20 bill, what does that do? You think, you, I mean, you're king of the world. You know what I'm saying? It's like somebody just wrote you a check for a million dollars. Yeah, it's like, you know, 20 bucks. And then when you're about three, like Veda, we go to her and hand her a dollar. It's like, I mean, it's just like we gave her a mansion. You know, right? Okay. But when you're 40 and somebody hands you a $20 bill, what happens? You're like, oh, thanks. It's cool. I pay for half my gas. You know, or a drink at Starbucks. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <clears throat> so, so why does $20 mean little to an adult at age 40, 
but means so much to that same person at age eight. Access. When you make $20 every hour or so at your job, it loses all in reverence. This is amazing to me how something that does not change in value economically can change so drastically in value personally. You become apathetic to what you have more and consistent access to. So today, if somebody hands me $20, I'm going to be, well, actually, let me rephrase it, because $20 is a big deal for us, I guess, right now. But, so let's say five. $5. Somebody, you know, <laughs> yeah. Somebody hands, hands me a $5 bill, I'm going to be like, thank you. So appreciate it, love you, you know, whatever. Somebody, not to dishonor, you know, that, but if somebody hands me a $500,000 check, I'm, first off, I'm going to fall out on the floor. And then second off, I'm going to lose my mind. I'll probably take a few runs down Main Street, you know, just go crazy. Why? Because I don't have $500,000. I have no access to that currently. I have a lot of $5 bills. You with me? This happens in marriage. It happens in jobs. It happens with cars and houses and school, etc. That what you used to stay up at night dreaming about, you curse two years into holding it. Why? Because access breeds apathy. So I know a lot of people uh, who stay awake at night dreaming of being in ministry and then somebody hires them at a church and about two years in they're calling saying man I just I just want to quit I'd rather work at Publix you pray Lord I pray I get into USC I pray I get into USC I pray to get you get into USC then two years in you're in a class that's kicking your tail and what do you start doing man I don't man I don't even know if I want to be in college anymore you get a job, hey, you'll post on Facebook. Y'all pray, y'all pray, I got this job interview, it's going to be awesome. Pray that I get this, we desperately need this. Then about a year or two into it, you're like, man, like y'all pray, I'm, I got to search for another job, I hate my boss, I hate what I do. We do don't we do that? We bought a, a Sequoia, it's the old, the old Sequoia out there, and I'll be honest with y'all. When we bought that, we paid cash for it because the car I had before that, I had an 18% interest on because I didn't have credit when I bought it. Ouch. So I got to tell y'all that story one day. I prayed the Lord would pay it off for me, and then one day I totaled it, and it it paid it off. So um, (laughs) the Lord Lord works in mysterious ways, you know. So uh, the funniest part about that is that I got in a wreck with with this girl, and we, we're both fine. And she gets out of the car and she says, hey, aren't you that guy who sings? And I was like, no, you know, it's not me. Um, <laughs> no, that's, you know. Um, this, this is at its greatest in the church. What one man once a year had access to in the Old Covenant, just like I read, every man, as in humanity, when I say man, humanity, has unlimited access to all the time in the New Covenant. So today, you have people 
who call themselves Christians and go to church every now and then and tithe a little every now and then and leave it at that. That is called apathy. Why? Because access leads to normalcy. Normalcy leads to complacency. Complacency leads to apathy, and apathy leads to pretending. One more time, so you can write this down. Access, access leads to normalcy. Normalcy leads to complacency. Complacency leads to apathy. And then apathy leads to ultimately pretending. So, so people will go to church if nothing else is going on. People will go to church if nothing else is going on. We should be rearranging our worlds around this thing. And when I say church, I'm not talking about dream church, but, I, but I'm talking about any church hosting the presence of the Lord, which today is rare. You don't choose where you are rooted based on your job. You choose where your job is based on where you are rooted. You don't choose the place that makes you feel good about your apathy. You choose the place that pushes you to honor. See, this is what we would do if we started understanding what we have access to freely. This is, at its core, why revival never lasts in America. At its core, if we wonder why there's seven-year revivals, two-year revivals, three-year revivals, maybe even one generation of revival, but then it just fizzles out. Why? Because when we get access to something, we start taking it for granted. And when we start taking it for granted, we become poor stewards of what we used to stay awake at night to steward correctly. And when we become poor stewards, we lose what we had access to because we were honorable stewards. So pastors, two poisons in the church today, lukewarm, apathetic Christians, and people who refuse to get rooted, right? All of these are connected in the right place. So pastors and leaders have had to become entertainers and people pleasers. Not because that's what they want to do, but because they lead a lot of people who presence isn't enough for. Let me give you proof. If everybody who has filtered through this church was here today, this building would not fit them. We'd have to rent town theater or something again. And maybe that wouldn't even fit them. Am I right? But, but, but people come in and presence is great for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, when presence starts becoming not enough, we flip the switch and we now want people to entertain us. And then when entertainment becomes not enough, we then want people to please us. And then when people don't please us the right way, because the only person that can legitimately please you is Jesus, when people don't please you the right way, you start going somewhere else where you can get another taste of the new presence and the new entertainment and the new people pleasing until you hop somewhere else. And that's why people are moving and moving and moving and refuse to get rooted. 
Do you see how this works? And this is just all prophetic unveiling of what we are right now. But there's good news if we could ever understand what Scripture says, what Jesus says, and what we are not, we can move into truth. Ephesians 5, everything that's brought to the light will be turned to truth. So what is modern orthodoxy? Ortho means straight. So think orthodontics, orthopedics. That word ortho means straight. Doxy, or another word that it comes from, doxa, means teaching, belief, dream, imagination, glory, and worship. So orthodoxy is straight teaching, belief, dreaming, imagination, glory, and worship. Or correct. I guess that would be another word you could use for straight there. Correct. So we are to create a modern or present. The word modern just means simply you know, present. A present orthodoxy. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight a highway in the desert for our God. Okay? So naturally, I can't believe I'm making it to the end of this. I didn't think I would. So naturally, access breeds apathy. That's what we've been talking about. And rarity breeds honor. Remember what Yahweh spoke to us earlier this year. He is close and accessible. Does anybody remember that? Wow. All right. Awesome. Great. Glad y'all listened. No, I'm just kidding. Um, did you, you raise your hand, Daniel? Oh, yeah. Okay. Perfect. 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 Okay. We, for two years, for two years, all we taught on was identity, identity, identity. And we'll never stop teaching on that. But around January, I felt the shift that he was moving us from identity, identity, into close and accessible. Identity being the access to close and accessible. What if we allowed Holy Spirit to shift natural tendencies in us to this? Okay? So naturally, access breeds apathy. What if, what if it was this? What if access could breed honor and rarity breed apathy? Naturally, access breeds apathy, rarity, honor. What if access could breed honor and rarity breed apathy? You'd find yourself restoring honor to the close and accessible presence of God and becoming apathetic to the systems and attractions of the world that, if you are saved, are now rare to you. When you were lost... Access to the presence of God was rare because you weren't saved. When you're saved, access to the presence of God is as free-flowing as being lost was to you being lost. So when you're lost, you figure out what's party, what party's coming up next Friday and what you're looking at tonight that you shouldn't be looking at and all this other craziness when you're lost. But when you're saved, 
It's access, 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 and the stuff that you used to have access to starts becoming rare. Why? Because you're not entertaining it. So what if access could breed honor in us and rarity breed apathy? Here, you would start to honor what you have free and full access to and then become apathetic to the things that you shouldn't even have access to anyway. Are are y'all following me? This is just, so honor plus access equals modern orthodoxy. Here, pastors and worship leaders and leaders could stop entertaining and start leading the family into glory to glory. Christians would rearrange their world to be rooted in glory-filled churches and families. Our cities would be saved. The sick would be healed. We'd encounter unspeakable things in the secret place. Creation would be set free from its decay. The kingdoms of the world would become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And Jesus would return for a pure and spotless bride to reign forever with us. One shift. One shift. What if today we took the honor that the Chinese people and the Iraqi people and people all across the globe have for the presence of God and attached it to the free access that we as Americans have to God? What if you did that? What would happen? Iraq, you know how Iraq's getting saved? Some of y'all could speak a lot to this because you guys are traveling all over the world. But if I, what is Iraq doing right? How is Iraq being saved? Well, I've heard stories of people that were going to take their own life. Jesus Christ show up in their living room and tell them, leave everything and follow me. That's how Iraq's getting saved. Not fog, not lasers, and not electric guitars. And those things are fine if that's what you want to do. But do you know how Iraq's getting saved? The presence and access of Almighty Yahweh. What if we took that and attached it to what we have, which is unlimited resources to go deep and deep and deep and deep, and nobody's saying a word to us. There, you might get killed for it. Here, you'll get elevated for it. So what we have is a blessing, but because we've held this blessing so long, we don't see it as a blessing We see it as something we're apathetic toward, and a lot of places see it as something we curse. So we begin to create theologies like cessationism. Why? Not because it's legit, because it ain't legit. You know what China's not sitting around doing? Trying to prove to each other that Yahweh is a billion miles out in space, 35 light years away, and we're down here, and he doesn't care about us, and he doesn't want to look at us, he doesn't want to talk to us, so he stopped doing that with the early church. You know what they're not doing? That. You know what they are doing? Hey, I saw the face of Jesus, you saw the face of Jesus, let's take that face and go show everybody else. How do we get there? How do we get to that point? This is how, and this is where I'm going to tie it back to Esther. We get to that point by remembering. Let me just, let me just track back for a second. Daniel, you can go ahead and hop up here so people think we're finishing. Um, <laughs> you ever notice I do that? Be like, Daniel, come on. Then 30 minutes later, we're still, you know. But I am at the end of my notes, which also means nothing. Um, 
Deuteronomy, remember, I just read this earlier, okay? The Lord tells them they're going to be blessed. They're going to be rich. They're going to, everything they touch will be multiplied. And he gives them one command when they get there. One command. Do not exalt yourself forgetting the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do not forget. Esther and Mordecai set up a yearly celebration to remember what Yahweh had done when they were hopeless so that generations into the freedom that this moment bought them, they would still be in honor though having endless access to that freedom. What caused the Israelites to turn to other gods? What caused the Israelites to turn to other gods? They forgot the God that parted a sea so that they could walk across on dry land. And the God that when they were in the wilderness, cursing him, saying, why did you bring us out here? We'd rather go back and be slaves. He says it's okay and causes a rock to spit out water for them. That they have a pillar of fire leading them by day and a cloud, excuse me, by day and fire by night. Leading them through a wilderness that they could not possibly make it to the other side without the Lord being with them, providing for them, and taking care of all their enemies along the way. Even when Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, the Lord parts the Jordan River just to remind them again where they came from. They walk across on dry land, and they go into the land. And you know what happens? They start to praise, and cities fall. The Lord takes care of everything for them, gives them the land he promised, keeps his covenant to a T. And then a couple of generations later, they're worshiping Baal, a false god. Crazy. Crazy. Except we do that too. It might not be called Baal. It might be called traveling baseball. Right? Hello? I don't get a lot of amens because all of y'all do that. It might not be called bail. It might be called job. It might not be called bail. It might be called money or relationships or whatever you want to call it. Let me say it like this. Let me say it like this. A lot of people have started chasing certain fruits of the Spirit because they've become disenchanted with Jesus himself. So, so we've turned from entertaining people as in doing rock concerts to now we want to entertain people by getting everybody to fall out on the floor. Do I believe that we should be doing that? Absolutely. I just believe if that's what it takes for you to get enchanted with the eyes that burn like fire, you have missed it. If I fall out, I fall out. If I get healed, I get healed. But let me tell you something. That does not That does not base my decision on who I follow. If he never answers one more prayer for me the rest of my life, when I'm 80, I'll be burning hotter than I was when I was 20. Why? Because it's not about answered prayers. 
It's about the eyes. It's about the presence. It's about a walk in the cool of the day. It's not about my questions being answered. It's not about how much of this I can know. It's not about how many people I can get to repeat a prayer. It's about when I'm 80 years old, I'm still getting up in the morning, and I'm still walking in the cool of the day with the one who is fascinated with me. And I promise you this, if that could ever be our posture, we'd see the sick healed on a level that we couldn't even fathom because our shadow would start to fall on people and the presence that we become so accustomed to honoring would be hitting people left and right and healing their sickness and bringing them into salvation knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the only one to beat death, the only one to be crucified on a cross and then walk out of a tomb three days later. Do y'all hear me? I'm not not saying that we shouldn't chase after that stuff. I'm saying we should chase after Jesus a lot more. But that's the movement right now. For 30 years, for 30 years, in America, maybe a little bit longer, but for 30 years, it was rock concerts. And then you know what happened? Rock concerts went out of style. How many of y'all are going to rock concerts now? Not a lot. Well, I guess nobody's going to a concert right now anyway. But... So that went out. Of, so that's not in style anymore. So we stopped doing that. And then we started becoming cover bands of other worship artists. That went out of style. And then we said, you know what? If we could get people to have joy and peace and love and hope and healing and all that stuff, then maybe they'd come to church. That, that, that is what we're doing. You know, how do I know that? Because every single message preached in America is how to have joy and how to have peace and how to have hope and why you should be healed and why you should do this. I, I, I rarely, rarely, rarely hear a message that's simply about Jesus. When did Jesus stop being enough? And I, people will say, well, Josh, those things go hand in hand. No, 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 no. They go hand in hand as long as it starts with Jesus. But if you start over here, they do not go hand in hand. He did not come. In fact, the crowd that he feeds, the 5,000, I teach on this all the time. He feeds the 5,000. They come back the next morning for what? For him to do another miracle to feed them. And he tells them, y'all are looking for something like Moses and the Israelites got in the wilderness. Yet a far better bread is right in front of your eyes and you refuse to see it. So let me give you a little insight into this bread today. Eat my flesh and drink my blood or you'll have no part in me. And they all turn around and leave. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't enough. They needed the bread and the fish and then they get Jesus alongside of it. He's not a side piece. He's not a side dish. He is the main course that brings everything with him. It's Jesus. That's the gospel. The gospel message does not need signs and wonders to prove it's the gospel message. But if you get the right gospel message, you'll have signs and wonders. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying we should stop approaching them. We should stop going after them. That's not, I know people are going to send me emails. That is not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is we need to stop pursuing the gifts and start pursuing the gift giver. Not for his gifts either. How is Paul in 2 Timothy? Man, it's it's under 12 o'clock. How do we do this? The Lord. Paul in 2 Timothy, I said this last week, is talking about I'm being poured out like a drink offering. China's gone. I mean, not China. Asia. Asia's abandoned me. 
It's, I mean, it's kind of hilarious to read. It's not hilarious, but like just the language he uses, I could just picture him writing this. He's like, everybody's left me. Asia, the whole thing, all of Asia's left me. Obviously, he's not talking about Asia like today's Asia. He's talking about, you know, um, Bible Asia. But he said, I went to trial. Nobody was with me. Paul's writing this. He's, he's at the end. He's being poured out. Let me tell you what Paul has not lost, hope. He's not looking around saying, this doesn't make sense. Theologically, I can't answer this. God must not be sovereign because I'm sitting here in a jail cell. God must not heal anymore because I'm sitting here getting beat. That's not what he's doing. You know why? Because Jesus found him when he was killing man. You know why Paul's Paul's story is so um, parallel to what I've walked through in my life? I wasn't killing Christians. Literally. But spiritually, maybe. Maybe. Because I got people to look at me and think that that's what it was to be a Christian. And it was not. It was not. Paul is killing Christians. And on a road, Jesus shows up and shifts his world. So in 2 Timothy when he's getting on the verge of getting killed and he's being poured out like a drink offering and everybody's abandoning him. He's not questioning his calling. He's not questioning his influence. He's not questioning if this was worth it. You know what he's doing? He's saying, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's not in 2 Timothy, but I'm imagining that's what Paul was worshiping like. Okay, because I know people are going to say that too. But that's what Paul, Paul is not in a jail cell thinking, man, all hope is lost. Paul is in a jail cell saying, it's all right. I got a handful of people like Timothy who in another generation are going to carry this farther than I ever could. I got hope. So as I'm sitting around this week thinking, because the one thing that I have to question all the time, I have to question all the time because I don't see it. I don't see it. All the time I sit with the Lord. This is my lamenting on a weekly basis. I'll say, Lord, it seems like no one's getting this. It seems, or few, very few. It's not like very few are getting this. It seems like very few care. All this stuff. And then I just keep hearing the whispers. Keep hearing the whispers. Yeah, but you got a couple. Jesus, Jesus does his ministry. He spends, I said this last week, spends three years raising the dead, healing the sick, doing all that stuff. He ascends, and 120 are in an upper room. You know, I, t- I feel like I say this every week because it's part of my convincing us that we're actually doing what the Lord's called us to do, right? 120 in an upper room, and Jesus was not questioning if he did it right. 120. Today, today, a ministry three years in that only had 120 would close up shop because this isn't making a difference. And I'm telling you, if we could learn to honor the access that we have today in this place, in your home, where you work, every place you go, if we could learn to honor the access that we have, we would stop seeing Christianity and the ministry as more people and instead see Christianity and the ministry as more access. 
Because if you honor one level of access, it leads you to another level of access. And then if you honor that level of access, it leads you to another level of access. Or you could say it like this, glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. The lie that most Christians have bought into is the devil is your greatest adversary. No, apathy is your greatest adversary. <laughs> most Christians their whole life think the, devil, think the devil is their greatest adversary. No, 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 no. The devil's nobody. The devil's under your foot. You know what I'm saying? I've got the keys to death and the grave. What does that mean? They ain't got no keys anymore. What does it mean if they don't have keys anymore? They have no authority. I have a key to my house. Why? Because it's my house. So if he doesn't have keys to anything, that means he don't have anything, including the world. That'll really, really, really mess with your theology right there. Really. Because we think we're fighting the devil. The devil's been fought and lost. That's what we think. We think we're living our life fighting the devil. No, we're living our lives. I believe as Christians in America that the number one thing we should be fighting is apathy. The devil's a non-issue. Apathy is poison that's killing millions. It's not the devil. I don't think about the devil. I can't even tell you the last time I thought about the devil. Hopefully you don't either. Do y'all hear me? Like, I, I know what they teach in college and Bible college and all that stuff, but I'm, I'm telling you today, the devil was beat. Was beat. Here's what apathy means. Some of y'all are sitting around this whole time being like, I don't even know what apathy means. Apathy means, listen to this, and I'm done. I got two more points. Lack of feeling or emotion Lack of interest or concern. Lack of feeling or emotion. Lack of interest or concern. So I just, I wonder what it would look like, and this, this is how I'm going to end this. What would it look like if we as a church, we as a church, could model for America and the globe what would it look like if we could model what it looks like to hold access and honor in the same hand? Because no one has done that before. I want, let, me, let me change that. I guess the early church definitely did that. Outside of the early church, I don't know of an age or an era where people adequately held honor and access in the same hand. Typically, access came first. Honor immediately was applied to the access, but because access lasted, honor became apathy over time. I've never, ever, ever seen in all of history, except for the early church, a generation, even going back to the Old Testament where they're seeing seas part, I've never seen a generation that could have access for an entire lifetime and get to the end and still be honoring just as much as they did in the beginning. Never. If we could do that, I promise you, we would see what no eye has seen and no ear has heard. You wonder why no eye has seen it and no ear has heard it? We don't even know how to love. You know what I'm saying? We, like we, 
we don't, we don't even understand what it means to love. You know what John 17 says? Jesus said that the world would know your mind by your unity. Now, here's where it gets crazy. Here's where it gets crazy. In John 17, do you know what he talks about when he's saying unity? Kyle hates unity, so he's leaving now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Perfect timing. Um, I'm just playing. My grandpa does that all the time. He's preaching. Somebody gets out to go to the bathroom. He'll make them feel awful about it. I don't do that. But, all right, he's John 17. This I'm done. He says, you'll, they'll, you'll know, they will know your mind by your unity. And then he takes it a step further, and he prays that we will be unified as they are unified. So, for the world to know that we're his, that means we are called to be unified as the Trinity is unified. What? Do you understand that? So we have 470 denominations in America, and we wonder why the world don't know we're His. Because the world will know we're His by our unity. What kind of unity? Hanging out every now and then? No, they'll know your mind by your unity, and I pray that you will be unified as me and my Father are unified. So the relationship that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have is three in one. They are so intertwined with each other that though they operate in three distinctions, they are one which is exactly why the church is called a body with Christ as the head. Because though you might be a foot and I might be a finger, and we operate in different distinctions, we are so intertwined that we are one body. So if the foot moves, the finger moves with it. And if the finger points, the foot is pointing with it. Right? So the way that we get to on earth as it is in heaven is honoring the access we've been given and the way we stay in honor of the access we've been given is family, is being rooted, is being unified, is Ellington being able to come to me and say, hey, I've seen you get a little apathetic in this right here, so I want to push you to make sure that you start honoring what you're starting to get apathetic toward. That's what this is about. But you've got to get rooted and we've got to honor and we've got to move from being okay with lukewarmness, which is simply a mixture. I mean, Revelation 3 says he'd rather you be cold than lukewarm. Hello? If you're hot or you're cold, great. But if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. What is it? He's saying, I'd rather you be all in or all out. But I don't want any of this pretender stuff. However, 99% of what we got is right here in the pretender thing. Yahweh is not spitting us out of his mouth yet. Yet. You know why? Because when Noah was in a world full of unrighteousness, Yahweh said, I wish I had never created it. I'm just going to destroy all of it. And yet Noah found favor in the sight of God. What did he say by then? As in the days of Noah which is why I don't believe the rapture's coming. <laughs> right? Right? I mean, we sit around and think we're escaping all day long. I'm not escaping the place he's coming to rain. If you want to escape, I don't think I'd want to be on that train, but you can go ahead. 
escape if you want to. I'm, I'm going to remain, and I'm going to honor, and I'm going to access, and then he's going to come, and he's going to say, sit here while I make your enemies your footstool, and then we're going to hear an announcement. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Behold, I saw a new heaven and new earth ascending out of the heavenly realm. The old was gone and the new was here. That's what we're going. We got hope. This is getting good. This is getting good. Maybe we should put that on a t-shirt. This is getting good. Right? I don't care what you see in CNN. I don't care what you see on Fox News. This is getting good. Why? Because a family of believers rooted in Columbia, South Carolina, is learning what it means like to have access to the king and honor it on a daily basis called the secret place. Man, I could keep going and going and going, but I'm not. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll be out. Y'all have no idea how much I'd love to stay here and preach for eight hours, but I know everybody else is hungry. So let me pray. I'm just super thankful for y'all. I'm, I'm so thankful for you guys. I know a lot of people out of state watch this online. I'm so thankful for you. Like, we're, this, is, this is world changing because none of this came from me. But this, this is world-changing, history-shifting stuff if we will grab hold of it. Let me pray. Yahweh, we honor you in this place. I thank you for finding me when I was so lost I didn't know it. I refuse to forget that. Because of what you did in my life when you found me, my daughter is walking around our house singing Waymaker. Because of what you did when you found me, our daughter's walking around the house singing Jesus. Jesus' house is cool. I mean, she sings stuff like that all the time. The other day she was singing Jesus' city is cool. I love Jesus' city. And I was like, I don't know how you know Jesus' city, but I guess you've been there because you sounded pretty detailed. But that, that, that's what we are going into. We got generations coming up behind us that aren't going to have to learn and unlearn things. Instead, they're going to inherit and go deeper into things because we are the generation that is finally dealing with all the deep-rooted issues that we've let just slide by for so long. So Yahweh, we receive that grace we receive the grace for you to look in the eyes of every issue that we currently deal with until it is dealt with in the passionate waterfall of a love of a God that was not okay with us remaining lost and separated. Even if it cost you your own life, you wanted us close and you wanted us accessible and you wanted us to have access to you as well. Thank you. We will remember we will remember and honor, and we will give our lives to doing those two things extravagantly before anything else. So we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All the glory, all the honor to our Lord now and forever. In your name, amen.